So this morning, our scripture reading is in James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Welcome, everyone. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here at Regeneration. We just recently wrapped up a real short series on liturgy, on the things that we do together each week when we gather. And we focused particularly on three things that maybe we don't talk about that often. We talked about communion, and we talked about singing, and more generally the idea of worship. Last week we talked about giving. Why do we give? Why is that part of what we do week in and week out? And connected that, of course, to this bigger idea of generosity. That series is over. Next week, I promise you, Albert will be back. So he'll be back with us next Sunday, and we'll wrap up our study of Nehemiah here by the end of August, and then we'll begin something new in the fall. But today, we are going to take some time and reflect a little bit on that passage from James that Melissa just read. So let's begin by praying together. So bow with me, if you would. Father, thank you for the space and time to gather and and be together to sing songs, take communion, read scripture, build relationships with one another. Thank you for this community of people, this really unique church that you're building here in the heart of Oakland. May you continue to teach us what it means to do justice and love mercy and to walk humbly with you. And today in particular, God, may you speak to us through the book of James. Teach us what it looks like to have a faith that lasts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's begin with a real quick survey. How many of you would say you live here in Oakland or in the East Bay, but in reality, you would say you are from somewhere else? Show of hands. How many of you would say you're really from somewhere else? Okay, so I'd say at least half, probably more than half of us would claim that we're from somewhere else. My wife and I, we moved here to Oakland seven months ago, and so we're still very new to the city. Definitely wouldn't call ourselves local, but we do have Bay Area roots. We grew up in the Monterey Bay Area. Both of us were born in the Bay Area, and then our families moved down there when we were small. So coming back to Oakland in some ways feels familiar to us, even though, again, we're still not totally locals yet. But for the last seven years, we lived in Boston. And Boston, if you haven't heard, is on the East Coast, which is very different from the West Coast. So living there, even though it's an American city, clearly it's part of the United States, it was a very foreign experience for us. Everything about living in Boston for us was totally different than our experience of having grown up in California. The weather was different, the sports teams are different, the accents are very different. The beaches and the beach culture of the East Coast, very different from the West Coast. The Mexican food, not as good. And just the general vibe of the East Coast, it was this constant reminder to us, you are not from here. 
And there was this sort of daily awareness of the reality of being from somewhere else. I never so closely identified with being a Californian as I did while we were living in Boston. We enjoyed our time there. It was a great city. But again, we had this everyday awareness of being disconnected from our home. So today we're looking at James 5. And if you still have that open, flip over a page to the beginning of the letter, James chapter 1, verse 1. This is how the letter begins. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. A couple of really important pieces of context emerge right away here in this salutation. First, James is speaking to a group of people who have been dispersed, who have been displaced, people who are living with that everyday awareness. This is not our home. We may call this place home, but this is not where we're from. And then second, he writes... He says to the 12 tribes, and that's a huge signal to those of us reading the letter that he's speaking to a Jewish Christian audience. Okay, Jesus followers, but a group of people who had grown up culturally and religiously Jewish. So these folks would have been living under some intense pressure, what I would call an external pressure and then an internal pressure. Externally, their lives were dominated by the reality of living in the Roman Empire under the political military machine of Rome, whose oppressive rule in many ways had led to their dispersion, a large part of the reason why they were scattered. So this incredible external daily pressure and then this internal pressure from their own people as cultural Jews, they would have been ridiculed, mocked, and in many cases entirely cut off from their communities, from their families. Their own people thought they were crazy. Even traitors, what are you doing worshiping this Jesus, this false Messiah? So in every possible way, James is speaking to, writing to a group of people who are literally, metaphorically, physically, spiritually without a home, far from home. So as a result, living under these kinds of intense pressures, this external and internal pressure, these folks didn't have a lot of time to sit around and engage in philosophical conversations or theological debates. And so James speaks to them accordingly. Okay? He speaks straightforwardly. He's very to the point, very blunt. And he's also extremely practical. Because again, that's what these people needed. James is just trying to help them survive, make it through to the next day. And so his primary message of survival really revolves around this theme of integrity. Now, when we hear the word integrity, a lot of us think of synonyms like trustworthy, someone who's honest, someone who has a strong moral character. And certainly that's part of what James is talking about in this letter. But I think what he really has in mind is this other definition of integrity. Integrity is also used to talk about the soundness, the quality of something particularly something that has been crafted. A mechanical engineer will talk about the structural integrity of a material or an object. Definition of structural integrity is the quality of an item to hold together under a load, including its own weight, resisting breakage or bending. Anyone here ever feel like you're under a weight, carrying a load, burdened in some way? When we feel that way, our language reflects that, right? We say things like, this thing, man, it's just weighing on me. I think I've reached my breaking point. feels like my life is just falling apart. 
in all likelihood, this is exactly how James's audience felt. Everything was falling apart. They're under this extreme pressure. And so again, James wants them to be able to hold together, to last, to make it. At the age of 51, Joshua Slocum, who was a seasoned sailor of many crosses across the Atlantic Ocean, came into possession of a vessel called the Spray. And when he came into possession of the Spray, the Spray was in pretty poor condition. It had been beat up pretty good through all of its travels. And so as a seasoned veteran sailor, Slocum, though, saw the potential in the Spray. And so he marches into the woods and begins to chop down trees to fashion lumber to refurbish the spray, like you do when you want to fix a boat. And he begins to rebuild the spray plank by plank, two by four by two by four. Did I mention he was 51 when he does this? This gives me great hope for my future. (laughs) Now, he does all of this work, not just so that he has a cool boat, but so that he can then sail the spray around the world by himself. It's a fairly ambitious guy. He wrote a book about his adventures called Sailing Alone Around the World. I think he was probably better at building ships than coming up with titles. (laughs) Now, before he takes off, having finished the rebuild, he declares that the vessel is worthy of this global circumnavigation. And in his own words, he uses the phrase, the boat is fit to smash ice. Fit to smash ice, meaning this boat is ready for anything. Whatever the sea is going to throw at it, this boat is going to make it. And I think this is what James has in mind for his audience as he writes this letter. He wants their faith to withstand this incredible pressure, these incredible trials that they're facing. He wants their faith to have structural integrity. He wants them to be fit to smash ice. So today's text, James chapter 5, comes at the end of the letter. And it's sort of a summary of what's come before. James is summarizing his three big themes. And I would say that these three themes are three qualities that are the foundation of a structurally sound faith. So the first thing that James talks about, he urges his readers to wait patiently. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, patience is one of those things that we, I think, sometimes wish we had more of, but we rarely enjoy the circumstances that produce it, right? Very few of us wake up in the morning and go, I just cannot wait for Comcast to put me on hold for an hour. I'm just going to grow so much in patience. Now, Douglas Moo, a biblical commentator, points out that the word that James uses here in this text for patience means expectant waiting. Expectant waiting. This is very different than just sort of enduring the hour-long hold with Comcast or whoever. For some reason, it seems like that's been the one for me recently. So this is much different, again, than enduring an unpleasant situation. This is the kind of waiting that our kids do the month or whatever leading up to Christmas or their birthday, right? This is the kind of waiting that maybe we do the week before we go on vacation, right? This is not passive, right? There's an excitement. There's a hope attached to it. There's also action attached to it as we prepare for what is to come. 
James connects this idea of hopeful, expectant waiting to farming. And I spent four summers of my life working in agriculture, and I learned a lot of things <laughs> through that experience. But mostly I learned that farmers live in this really interesting paradox. On the one hand, they're totally at the mercy of a wide variety of factors, right? The weather, water availability, sunshine, all these different kinds of things can totally derail a crop. And yet, on the other hand, they don't just sit there and hope that, you know, they throw some seed out and something good is going to come up out of the soil. Farming is really hard work. They spend a lot of time and a lot of sweat making sure the conditions are right for their crop to be produced. It's hopeful action paired with patient waiting. James attaches this waiting to the ultimate ending to the story. He says, wait patiently until the coming of the Lord. Okay, that glorious moment when Jesus returns, Jesus sets everything right. All of our sorrow is turned to joy. This is hopeful, joyful waiting, anticipating the best possible ending to this story. Now, in no way, shape, or form is this an easy thing to do. It is a disciplined, courageous practice to wait patiently, and yet at the same time, hopefully, expecting that God will come through. Now, James's second theme, second sort of foundational piece of structural integrity is very closely related to this. He tells his listeners to endure suffering. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And this is one of the main themes of James's letter. It's all over his letter, this call to endure suffering. And in this particular verse, James is echoing the words of another New Testament writer, the writer to the Hebrews, another letter we find in the New Testament scriptures. The author of Hebrews gives this really long list of amazing people who had faith infused with incredible structural integrity. These are people who waited and endured, but the author of Hebrews says none of them received what was promised. None of them received what had been promised. There might not be a more challenging verse in all of Scripture for me than that one. Are you willing to wait patiently to endure suffering even if you don't get to see the end result? Now, I think some of us might be willing to sign up for a little suffering if we know something good is going to come at the end of this. Right? I'm going to get something out of this. There's going to be some kind of good result. But if you don't have that guarantee, most of us would run. I would probably run. <laughs> I'll be honest. But here's this really deep truth that James reveals all through the letter about suffering. When we avoid suffering and trials and difficulties in our impatience, we short-circuit the process of building a structurally sound faith. And so James wants these people to know, he wants us to know, if we don't lean into our suffering, the way that these heroes of the faith did, we won't last. And we won't be fit to smash slush, let alone ice. Now, finally, James's third theme is to speak truthfully. Verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And then verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
Now, patience and suffering pretty obviously seem to go together. So what does this have to do with having a structurally sound faith? How does this connect with these other themes? We'll get to that in a moment. But first, I ride my bike to and from Regeneration almost every day. And we live in East Oakland, so I sort of weave my way down Bancroft and East 12th, and there's some side streets kind of thrown in there to uh, connect those two routes. And as I make my way here or back, I usually pass several homes or buildings that have been boarded up. Someone has determined that these buildings have lost their structural integrity. They're dangerous to go inside. They're no longer safe. What does it say on those buildings that have been boarded up? It says condemned, right? Now, as it relates to these buildings, this word condemned means no longer safe, unfit for habitation. Kind of a warning, enter at your own risk. People who have embraced suffering, who have patiently endured really difficult things, tend to be very honest people, right? There's not a lot of pretense. Not a lot of spin, not a lot of image management. Those things aren't interesting to them anymore. People who are honest, who don't need to add words, come up with some sort of oath to back up the words that they're saying, people who can simply say yes or no, those are safe people. And if you know people like that, hold on to them because they are a precious gift. (laughs) Here's the thing. You may never see the fruit of your suffering, but if you run away from it, you will end up like those dilapidated buildings, busted up, condemned, no longer safe. Now, at the heart of each of these three themes is the struggle that many of us have with faith, the struggle that we have with God. When we act impatiently, we're saying we have a better sense of timing than God does. When we avoid suffering, we're saying we know what we need better than God does. When we use our words to grumble or complain or to spin the truth, we give ourselves the last word when, in fact, it is God who has the last word. These are three areas where we struggle to trust God. In our house, when the time comes to do an unpleasant chore, like change a diaper or something along those lines, whoever is feeling more gracious between me and my wife will say, I got this. Don't worry. I got this. This is what God says to us. The good news of Jesus is that God has said, I got this. I got you. I'm taking care of you. You can trust me. I got this. 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Look at those words again. Yes, amen, established, sealed, guarantee. God says, I got this. Trust me, I've got you. Now, in the middle of all this really difficult stuff, as James calls these people under intense pressure to wait patiently, to endure suffering, to speak truthfully, And I think to connect back to this idea that God has got us, James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. 
You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. These were very familiar words to this Jewish Christian audience. They're all over the Old Testament. Exodus, Numbers, Joel, Nehemiah, Jonah, several psalms among many texts use this very kind of phrasing. One example, if you have a Bible, flip over to Psalm 103. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he remove our transgressions from us, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. A.W. Tozer writes, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Is God a bitter, angry old man sitting up in the sky waiting to zap you when you do something wrong? Many of us at a really deep level, have this view of God. James says the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Father Greg Boyle says it this way, God is compassionate, loving kindness. Certainly, compassion was the wallpaper of Jesus' soul. I love that phrase. The contour of his heart, it was who he was. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What comes into your mind when you think about God? If patience and suffering and honesty are the foundation of a structurally sound faith, then compassion is the roof. It covers us. And it not only makes us fit to smash ice, but it allows us to be a safe place for other people. Four times in this short little section, James says brothers or brothers and sisters, depending on which translation you're looking at. It's as if James needed to remind his readers, oppressed and far from home, you are family. And nowhere is honesty, patience, endurance, and compassion needed more than in a family. Am I right? <laughs> Greg Boyle, who I just quoted, he's written a book called Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion. It is so good. Read it. If you have kids, read it with your kids. It's a really, really good book. He's the founder of Homeboy Industries, which is in East L.A. It's a nonprofit organization that helps young men and women get trained for jobs so that they uh, have an alternative to gangs. Let me finish his quote. I left part of it out on purpose. He says, God is compassionate, loving kindness. And then he says, all we're asked to do is be in the world who God is, to be compassionate. Compassion leads to true community with each other, to what Father Boyle calls kinship, family. Kinship is the result of patience, endurance, honesty, and compassion. Kinship is what connects us, even though we may be far from home. Kinship is the fruit of a structurally sound faith. Father Boyle has a lot of amazing stories and one of them involves an invitation to the White House. 
This is how the story goes. Laura Bush calls him up and says, I want you to come speak at the White House, and I want you to bring three homies with you. <laughs> I don't know why I get a kick out of Laura Bush saying three homies for some reason. <laughs> and I think this story illustrates the power of compassion to create kinship. So Father Boyle writes, I pick Alex, Charlie, and Felipe. I suppose if you had asked Central Casting to select three homies, they might have chosen these guys. They are large, tattooed, all had done time. Alex is thickly built in his mid-twenties, a handsome guy with tattoos stretching across his neck. The tacks on his chin and forehead are fainter. He's already undergone 37 laser treatments. He only needs, oh, about 96 more. <laughs> He's a simple guy, never did well in school. At a Dodgers game once, after singing the Star Spangled Banner, with his hand over his heart, Alex confides, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell my right hand from my left if it weren't for the Pledge of Allegiance. Alex's job at Homeboy is to help supervise our part-time workers. But mostly, though, he gives tours. Reluctant to do so at first, Alex has come to inhabit this role with a certain degree of delight and his own particular brand of panache. He'll greet you at the front door, introduce you to the job developers, explain our release program, hand you a pair of goggles so you can watch tattoos being removed. Blessed are the single-hearted. Jesus meant Alex. Few people come as true and pure as Alex. He gives a good tour. He goes on to tell how he takes these three guys to the men's warehouse and they all get suits and they look at themselves in suits for the first time in their life and they're quite delighted about that. And then eventually the time comes and they get on a plane and fly to D.C. On Thursday, he writes, the day the homies sport their suits for the conference and the White House dinner, we discover that Alex has lost his pants. We know this because Alex is running around my brother's house yelling, I got no pants. <laughs> as best we can piece together, Alex must have lost them in the hurry to get to my car the morning we left for the airport. There's now a homeless guy in East LA who likes the way he looks. I guarantee it. <laughs> the man can tell a story. We get Alex a new pair of pants thanks to my brother and we're good to go at the White House. Butlers walk the halls carrying long-stemmed glasses of white wine, which the homies snatch up with haste. Every room, the blue room, the green room, all those different colored rooms seems to have either an elegant combo of musicians or a brass band. The gold room holds the buffet. Never in my life have I seen or tasted more exquisite food. I go back three times. Rack of lamb, perfection. Pastas, salads, salmon the size of a duffel bag. They even have these small white potatoes cut lengthwise with a hole carefully bored and filled with caviar. I'm standing with Alex as he pops one of those suckers in his mouth. Almost as quickly with his discretion valve turned off, he spits the potato mess into a napkin and says, this stuff tastes nasty. <laughs> you guys got that. That was good. The next day, we head home, and somewhere over Nebraska, Alex says he needs to go to the restroom. I point to the back of the plane. 45 minutes later, Alex returns to his seat. Did you fall in? I ask him. Oh, Alex says with his signature innocence, I was just talking to that lady over there. I turn and see a lone flight attendant standing in the back. Alex winces a bit. I made her cry. I hope that's okay. <laughs> 
Well, Alex, I braced myself. That might depend on what you actually said to her. <laughs> well, Alex begins. She saw my homeboy industry shirt and my tattoos, and she started asking me a grip of questions. So he pauses with a whiff of embarrassment. So I gave her a tour of the office. At 34,000 feet, Alex walks this woman through our office. He introduces her to our job developers, explains our release program, hands her goggles to watch tattoos being removed. And I told her that last night we made history, he says, brimming with excitement. For the first time in the history of this country, three gang members walked into the White House. We had dinner there. I told her the food tasted nasty. He pauses and gets still, and then she cried. I get still myself. Well, Miho, what did you expect? She caught a glimpse of you. She saw that you were somebody. She recognized you as the shape of God's heart. Sometimes people cry when they see that. And then he writes, suddenly, kinship. Kinship. Two souls feeling their worth, a flight attendant, and a gangbanger at 34,000 feet. No daylight separating them, exactly what God had in mind. My prayer for you, my prayer for myself, is that your faith will be strong, fit to smash ice, able to be honest and patient and to endure, and that your faith, my faith, is infused with this compassion that leads us towards greater kinship with one another. So, brothers and sisters, remember, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Let's pray. Father, we do make this our prayer, that our faith would be strong, and not necessarily in the intellectual way, but in the sense of having been tested by these things that life throws at us. May we be patient, expectantly waiting, hopeful that you will come through, that you have promised to come through, both through Jesus and ultimately in the end when he returns. May we endure suffering, even if we don't get to see the fruit of that, God. May we endure suffering, knowing that somehow you are at work in the midst of that. And may we be honest. May we be people who speak the truth who don't feel the need to add words to make ourselves look better or to prop you up in any way. So may our faith be structurally sound. And in the midst of those really difficult things, God, may we remember your purpose, that you are merciful and compassionate towards us. And so may we be people who know that and are able to extend that to others so that we are a safe place for folks to find healing and rest and restoration and regeneration. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.